I'm looking for somebody that does more than just sell a unit because those people, in my opinion, Sam, are mutually exclusive. Those hired guns that know how to sell, they're not necessarily interested in texting their customers one week, one month, one year after. But there are people out there that are purely interested in the customer service side of life. We got to find that blend and look for that person. We're going to do our best to get new thinking out there. There's going to be discussions centered around growth and new thinking. That's where those great ideas come from, exploring them together. Nuggets that you can go back and put into your dealership that'll help you make more money. This is GarageCast. Welcome to GarageCast Season 2, which is Episode 52. So this is actually Season 2, Episode 1. Crazy, man, right? Is, is this the year that Netflix picks us up, Tony? Is, is that coming? Well, I think so. I mean, you and I haven't even really started marketing that, you know what I mean? Or really started talking to big-named Scorsese-type people to, <laughs> you know, to start sponsoring and taking over this cast. Well, speak for yourself. I've been talking to these guys all day long. Oh, yeah. We're just not talking about the podcast. No, oh, really? What are you talking about? I figured you'd want to close on this thing. Is this the biopic movie about you? About, hey, Martin Scorsese, listen, here I am. I'm played by Brad Pitt. Well, Tony, most people don't do that on their own. They have an agent. And so if you remember the podcast we did with Robert Patrick, he's my go-to guy out in Hollywood. He's getting this done for us. So I just didn't know your job was to line up Netflix. My job was to pave the highway in Hollywood. So I've done my part and I'm wondering about I cannot you. wait to watch this movie. It's going to be awesome. So in all seriousness, man, we left 2020 by saying that this podcast has just become something that we never thought it would be. We are starting out season two with a pretty massive laundry list of things that we're seeing out there and that we want to get out to you guys. There's a good little break, though. You know what I mean? People don't really realize all of the work it takes for us to schedule people for these, the logistics, you know, recording, editing these things. So it was a good little break. But I'll be honest, I was eager to get back and, and start getting these things going. You? Yeah, I, I was I was missing it, man. There's there's only so much time I could spend in the house. Right? Yeah, exactly. We've got a uh, Brandy has one of her girlfriends in the house who went through a hip replacement surgery they did not take because it turns out her bones are a little brittle. And in a hip replacement surgery, there's a there's a rod that goes down in a femur that broke her femur twice. So she's had three hip replacement surgeries. And so she's in this cast and they're sitting around the house chatting all day long. So you can imagine I've been spending a lot of time in the garage wondering if this damn podcast is going to start again so that I can stay over <laughs> in this side of the house over instead of that side of the house. We're bringing this podcast to you middle of winter, middle of January. We are thick into kind of returning back to what we do. I've had some live events training. You've done some live events with our 20 clubs. I'm getting ready to hop on a plane this afternoon to get down to do a 20 club myself. So uh, business is starting to return kind of uh, you know, with a little trepidation uh, and, and slower than we would think, but it's starting to return back to to what we, we saw about a year ago. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, at least the political climate has calmed down a little. Uh, yeah, or, or totally. Not, or maybe not at yeah. all. I, I like the idea where our, I think these guys need to know kind of where this agenda came from today, because as we frequently solicit hot topics from our 20 clubs, of which we've got two in the rearview mirror right now, we're going on the front end of the season. As those hot topics were coming in, it was it was kind of the 
holy cow, this is the obvious opener to season 2021 was mm-hmm. the collection of what's on all of your minds. And so uh, I'm pretty pumped to go through this today, Tony. As Sam said, we just kind of cherry pick some ideas that all of our groups had um, some questions. And, and you know, what's funny is probably what a lot of our 20 club members or people listening to this don't realize is that we could really solicit of the 21, 20 clubs that we have, we could solicit hot topics and 99% of them are going to be the exact same. You can you right. do them for, for the exact same group. So let's break down number one, because number one is really what everybody in all of our industries that we play in is talking about. And that is, how do we sell a unit when we have no units to sell? Now, hang on, because Tony, this is going to be number one of our 21, as in 2021, top five, right? We're getting back to our top fives here. Oh, I completely forgot. And thank you for the reminder on that one. Yeah, this is the the top five things that we should be doing in 2021. Uh, we have about eight to 10 bullet points that we'll be covering. So much like all of our other top fives, uh, we're going to just go way above and beyond. So we call that whatever we want. Top five things in 2021. What happened to our top five? We were doing that consistently. And then all of a sudden we weren't. What happened there? I believe in March COVID hit. And that's, that's really, that's, that's kind of what stopped the, the, uh, the top five was that we kind of, we completely pivoted, went in a different direction in honesty and and being a hundred percent serious, Sam is, you know, we never really expected this podcast to be talking to people that we're talking to, that we're privileged enough to talk to. It was going to be some Tony and Sam talking about really good dealership points, a couple of interviews here and there, us talking to some of our trainers out there on you know, F&I, service parts and accessories. It was kind of an educational and, and, and we're going to riff with some people. And then next thing you know, we got a, a line of people that want to talk. And so, yeah, we're getting back to our roots. I like it, dude. I like it. All right. Top five with like eight bullet points. And I also I love the idea that w- although you and I know the bullet points, you and I don't yeah. know each other's talking points about the bullet points. So this is going to yes. be good. Why don't you kick it off there with number one? How to sell a motorcycle, how to sell a boat, how to sell a bicycle when you have none of those to sell. By far, the number one biggest concern of every one of our clients out there is what are we going to do about inventory? Because if you look at the numbers across the board, be it in any three of those industries, all the dealers are looking back at us when we do our webinars and stuff like that. Like, um, so, so what do we do now? Because it's a really good problem to talk about because everybody has it is this is you got no choice. And, and Sam and I have talked a million times about what it was that 2020 did to us. It made us pivot. And I'll tell you, the cool thing is, is 90% of the people that we do business with made it just fine and actually benefited from something like this. So when we're talking about what do we sell when we don't have anything to sell is, let's talk about that used product, that pre-owned product. In all of our industries, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity. Now, Sam, you know, based off of data that we have and some dealers and some, some friends out there that we know that have seen some of those MIC numbers is, we're talking about half a million new motorcycles sold in 2020. Half a million. Talk to me about Polk Industry data. So MIC is where we're getting new data from. Polk Industries, where we're getting used from, comes through the Department of Motor Vehicles. Tony, spot on. The number is, uh, yeah, is north of half a million on the new side of the fence. We haven't been in this territory for the last four years, and that's with all of you out there thin on inventory. But when you get on the Polk side of the fence, and Tony, you don't know this, two days ago, I got the newest Polk Industry report, and I was in a 20 club, so I haven't sent it out yet to the team. But it's through November. Remember, it's coming from 
Department of Motor Vehicles. Hence, it's January and we're getting through November. And I'd say they're, they're ahead of the game as far as the report coming out. What Department of Vehicles really lacking is processing getting these units titled. They're still 30 to 60 days behind. So take that with a grain of salt. As I give this information to you, we are up year over year through November. We're sitting at 1,416,000 power sports units, right? This is specifically to the power sport motorcycle side of the fence. But that's up three and a half percent over the year before. And it doesn't include about 30 to 60 days of registrations that the year before did have in it. So we got one more month of data to come in from Polk and they're going to be caught up probably by February. And I think, Tony, when this when this whole thing shakes out, we're going to be sitting closer to one point seven million as opposed to the one five that we ended at last year and the almost one four and change that we're at right now. I did a presentation for the Marine Retailers Association of America in December, and it was basically how to up your pre-owned game. And the funny thing is, is that the motorcycle industry and the Marine numbers are starting to look almost seamless with each other, which means at the end of the day, 80% of motorcycles and boats sold are sold still driveway to driveway. Why did I do the dramatic slow talk there? I really want you guys out there listening to this to think about that is 20% or less than 20% of all boat and motorcycle sales are coming from dealers. So you're going to ask yourself, how do we sell motorcycles when we don't have motorcycles to sell is insert yourself aggressively into the process. You should be scouring Facebook marketplace. You should be scouring websites. You should be looking for deals at auctions. Whether you believe that there's deals to be had right now or not, there are. And you should actually be proactively approaching pre-owned material by going and inserting yourself into that process. Thoughts on that, Sam? Well, the quick answer is, well, it's really hard to buy the boats right now. Well, that's because you're trying to get them at $500 back a book right? What will they sell for? We're selling used or pre-owned selling at almost the same price as the new, almost, which if you put the pre-owned at that price right next to the new, it makes the new look that much more advantageous. So you want to be a good new unit dealer, be a good pre-owned unit dealer, right? So don't tell me they're not out there. Tell me you don't want to buy them for a bunch of different reasons. That's fine. I'm sitting here on a report right now that uh, Pete from our team just sent out on January 15th. It is the weekly auction report from NPA. Report highlights, the on-road saw a $3,500 drop in the average wholesale price. So if you're sitting here thinking about the last time you went to auction, well, as of last week, at the time of this recording, there are some bikes to be had at the auction. You can over-allow, if you think about the cost of going to the auction and getting the units delivered to your dealership, you can over-allow at the curb, which means your local zip code, whoever's selling a boat, and get on Facebook Marketplace, brilliant place to find some inventory who's ever selling the boat who's ever selling the bike over allow at the curb give them more than you think it will sell for and then take the price up it's a paradigm shift a poll before i gave that speech with mra matt gruen was uh nice enough to show me some of the results of the poll that they did and here's the thing that shocked me less than 20 percent of dealers out there are spiffing their salespeople for bringing them pre-owned units and it's absolutely absurd. So you sit there and you think, hey, Tony, you don't understand what I what I have to do in a day as an owner, or as a GM, or, or whatever it might be as a sales manager. I got all kinds of things going on. Fantastic. Spiff your salespeople to go get onto the internet 
and to go search for these things and pay them on the front end for finding it. You can also look at uh, some form of a spiff on the back end when it sells as well. So of course, you're not bringing them in if you're not helping your salespeople by giving them some money when they find them. So really good point. Yeah, Tony, I'm sitting here. I got a composite up in front of me. I got a power sports composite. I was also working on the Centurion Marine composite. So I might I might bounce back and forth. But just on the composite in front of me right now, on the metric side of the fence, average selling price of $11,000 on the power sports stuff, another eighteen dollars or $18,000 on the side-by-sides, right? You're telling me with a margin that better be north of 20 points on the used product that's out there that you don't have money to throw at a salesperson to find that unit, to bring it on the floor? And you got dealers who are like, well, I spiff them 50 bucks. Really? Would you do it for 50 bucks? <laughs> spiff them 500 bucks and watch how many used products that you get a shot at. Exactly. And another thing to talk about is we are back in the times of mid to, to late 1990s. And I remember the first time I went to the motorcycle dealership to buy my first brand new Harley Davidson. That was the purple and pink fat boy, right? No, that was your purple. I think you actually didn't even have a garage. You put it into my garage. So while you're talking tough, you didn't even have a place to put yours. Um, no, that was my it was it was Aztec orange and something kind of ice. It was cool, man. Yeah. I don't care what you say. Yeah, you, you keep telling yourself that. Was that when you had the penny loafers and no socks going on? Was that that phase? And a sweater, uh, you know, knotted around my neck. Just yes. Stop. So when I went up to the dealership to do that, dude, uh, they didn't have anything on the floor. And anything that they had on the floor had a sold tag on it. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't even get within five feet. Dude sitting there at his desk, feet up on the desk, threw me a, a yellow legal pad and said, put your name down, cut me a check for a grand. Uh, and and what did I do? Cut a check for a grand. <laughs> Absolutely. No questions asked. Right. right. So did you ever pay your girlfriend back for that thousand dollars? I have a really good comeback, but I'm not going to say it. Um, yeah, of course I did. But gang, start creating some urgency, right? It, we're 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 way past doing business in 2019. It's totally different now. So create that urgency that, yes, we are getting that thing, sir. Yes, we will be getting that, ma'am. And if you can put a non-refundable deposit on that, come bring it in. Write me a check. We will make sure that you are in queue for when those things are delivered You know, in April, in May, in June, whatever that might be. But, but I just remember, Sam, the back when it was a seller's market in the 90s, and I tell this story in training all the time, there were just units that you couldn't see unless it was in a magazine. The internet didn't even exist. And you were sitting there with a magazine in hand, salivating, waiting for this thing to drop, calling your dealership, hey, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? And when it finally got there, man, it was nuts, the pandemonium that it would create in your mind at the store. So start taking deposits. Yeah, non-refundable deposits. And not. And I'm not talking about a $100 deposit. I'm talking about 10% of the selling price deposit. Yes, boat dealers, 10% of your selling price. It's amazing how many deals get lost at boat shows because your your deposit was insignificant. So you, you want to have people not walk away from boats at a boat show, take a substantial deposit at the boat show. And that's what we're telling you guys to do right now. When those units come in, gang, it's no different. I'm sitting here looking at bicycle industry data right now. And when you start playing with high-end bicycles, like $5,000 and more, I, I mean, you can't, you know, Dan, uh, Tony, you know, Dan, my brother, he just had a wheel issue and he's waiting to get his wheel trued at the bike shop. And they told him, man, I, I don't I can't even get the um, spokes and the nipples for your bike for three to four weeks. And so Dan has prepaid for it and he has an appointment in four weeks so that he could go ride his bicycle. You sit here and you look at the bicycle industry, mountain bikes, 
41% year-over-year gain. E-bikes, 132% year-over-year gain. Road bikes, 25% year-over-year gain. Gravel bikes, 63% year-over-year gain. It's, it's not just our industry. So the customer is getting conditioned to an expectation that the products aren't there. And if they want them, they better be ready to step up and throwing a sizable deposit down keeps them locked in on that. So don't, don't feel like, oh, I don't want to be that guy and take your deposit and whatever. Again, right now it's supply and demand and you don't have it. And if they want it, they will do it and they will do it gratefully. So, yeah, Tony, I, I, we, we beat the drum on the used all the time. And the alternative would be to go and go ahead and put the deposit down now on the new. But another alternative that I think a lot of people dismiss is a rental program. I would suggest to you, for those of you who've been with us, Garage Composites, Lemco for the long haul, Harley-Davidson used to have a very strong rental program. And it wasn't necessarily the money you would or wouldn't make in the rental program. It was the fact that you had people who could try out these motorcycles. And then if I had a priority maintenance plan with you, when my bike was in for maintenance, I had access to another bike that wasn't my bike, right? You had to pick a bike that's not the model of the bike you're currently riding. And all that did was speed up my own turn cycle as a customer out there. So the rental program, I think people look at a P&L and say, I don't know, it is or it isn't profitable, but there's so many other advantages of having a rental program, and you can do rental programs with used product out there. It doesn't have to be your new inventory. Tony, I'm looking at this fractional yachting uh, solution, so try before you buy fractional yachting, and, and you sit here and you think about the, the boating industry and how many people want to play on a boat. The example they give is a $119,000 boat that if you wanted to buy it outright, Okay, or you could jump in at 7900 bucks for the season. You could have a rental program for the season. So for 7900 bucks, you get access to that boat. And I think a lot of people just don't want, either want to go through the headache or it's different than the way you've run your business in the, before to, to have a rental program out there. But I don't know if you're an Amazon fan, Tony, as opposed to a, 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 you know, an Apple Music fan or whatever. But even in the, both of those instances, you don't own that Apple Music. It's on your phone, but you don't physically have it like we used to have albums and cassettes and CDs. It's not yours, even though you have access to it, just like the movies we watch on Netflix and Amazon or whatever. They're not yours, even though you have access to it. So this is the way everything is going right now. And for you guys, if nothing more than a bridge to get us through to where we have some inventory, consider a rental program, please. And lastly, what you'll just see a ton of this going around in our email forums for our groups is other brands that are outside of those big name brands, right? So I have a lot of dealers that are selling hammerhead go-karts. I have a lot of dealers that are, you know, this is the SSRs, um, CF Moto. And, and to your point, Sam, I, I remember back, like you said, I'm trying to think it was the last update before we went to Atlanta. I remember you were talking about uh, Chinese brand scooters, Korean brand Dinley, Tom, Tomco. Tom, there were like <laughs> 7,000 of them out there, right? There are brands to be had, gang, and there are brands where you don't have to invest a lot of money. You don't have to get a lot of stock, but it's something else to sell, whether it is bicycles, something else out there. I, I believe that we have given you many examples of ways that you can go ahead and fill your showroom floor without having to fill it with inventory from the major OEMs that we're waiting on their product. If you remember Hyosung, Tony, we actually had some mm -hmm. meetings with Hyosung. Hyosung was using a Suzuki engine inside of it, and it was actually a quite reliable alternative motorcycle to the big brands that are out there. And so we're hearing the same thing about CF Moto. Had a guy in our 20 Club yesterday telling me about CF Moto was the number one selling brand in his dealership. It had mm -hmm. a great price point and is actually really, really reliable. So 
whether it's a long play or a stopgap, there are some other brands. If you don't want to be as heavily dependent on used as we keep beating the drum, I think it's a both conversation, not an either or conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's play and use. Let's look at rentals and let's look at some of these uh, ancillary brands out there. Let's uh, shift over into staffing levels. That has been another massive question from all of our dealers, which is, you know, there's some un- unpredictability that still remains. We don't know how much inventory that we're going to have. What do I do with my staff? And this this goes beyond the, the question of being able to pay for them, you know, because many of us have partaken in the PPP loans. It has to do more with bandwidth, about running lean, about slamming more money to the bottom line in all the departments. Appropriate staffing levels when you have limited visibility, Sam, what are you thinking? (laughs) I'm going to go on record and say there are a lot of dealers are not going to like me for this comment, and I'm going to say it anyways because it's the right thing to say. My question to the dealers is what are you staffing for? And I can hear Adam Smith right now rolling his eyes saying, oh, yeah, that's exactly right. What are we staffing for? We don't have enough units, so why are we going to have staff? Okay, hold on. Here's the other side of the argument. I got this report last week from Salesforce.com, the biggest leading CRM company in the industry. 79% of consumers say the experience that a company provides is as important, if not more, than the products and service they provide. So is the experience that I walk in and you have no bikes and no staff? Is, it, is that the experience? Just because you don't have bikes, your logic is that I shouldn't need to have staff right now? Huh. Because the question, again, is what are you staffing for? Now, we're getting into a this, this parlays over into the advertising conversation, too, Tony. And I don't want to get the cart in front of the horse here. But the fact of the matter is, if you've got a whole lot of first-time buyers in all industries right now and nobody's following up with them. Right. So what are we staffing for? Are we staffing for taking care of the people who bought from us in 2020, knowing that they're going to be loyal customers if we keep them in the cycle? Is that what we're staffing for? Or are you only myopically looking at we have only X amount of units coming in. I'm going to staff for the units we're going to sell. I think you need to staff for the experience all the way around inside your store, including the follow up, including speeding up customers turn cycles. And so. In dollars and cents, I'm sure that doesn't sit well with some of our dealers right now. Yeah, and and the counterpoint, there is no right answer to this question. And Sam uh, and I pose it because we wanted to kind of go back and forth on on our thoughts on this is at this point in time, we definitely know that our CSI scores in all stores, in all demographics went down as well. We have orphaned, and we've discussed this in season one, we have orphaned a lot of customers out there that were first-time buyers. And so there is a need to ensure that we are not only putting forth a really good customer experience out there, but we have to make sure that we have enough staff to meet the people that are walking through the door. My counterpoint to that, Sam, would be, listen, how hot and heavy and furious is it going to be in 2021? Are we going to get hit with a tidal wave again? And are we going to be looking to maximize our dollars versus maximize our experience? I personally feel that there is a good blend in there. And, you know, we, we had that conversation. Uh, I think it would probably be sometime in the summer, Sam, about if you want to maximize specialize, if you want to maximize generalize. I still it, personally, I'm still struggling with if you want to maximize specialized, getting back into that model of 2019. And I would say that we're still in a generalize moving into a specialize again. So just be careful and understand. Don't just willy nilly go and hire people. You better have bandwidth for them and make sure that they're doing more than one job out there. That's my opinion. I think that maximization specialization comment, which is a Mark Tack quote, I always like to give uh, you know credit where credit is due. 
bodes very, very well when the industry, when, when things are normal, if you will, when demand is normal, inventory is normal, things are normal. That works really well. But I think you got to pivot and make exceptions when they aren't. So I, I get the quandary. I get the question. I understand it relative to your point about kind of where the industry is going and is it going to be fast and furious? And, and we'll circle back on that at the end here, Tony. But this is straight out of the motorcycle industry council, gang. Post-coronavirus lockdown, the traveling habits are expected to change as people would still prefer social distancing, augmenting demand for private vehicles. This is expected to generate an upward trend in the sales of motorcycles in the near future. You, you got a lot of people playing on the products that we have because of the coronavirus, and you have a whole lot of new riders to that industry. Can we be doing more with them? And I realize I'm bleeding into bullet point number three here, Tony, but I think it's really important when you look at staffing to look at both sides of the fence and make the call for your dealership specifically. Well, let's bleed into question three, which is capitalizing on the new customers that we acquired in 2020. And every industry that we play in uh, has seen just a massive boom of new customers that have come in because, you know, they, they had a motorcycle when they were a kid. They had a dirt bike. They maybe had one in college to get around. They have left the industry for years, and now we would consider them a new customer. Or they've never owned anything, and they came in for a new boat, something to get out onto the water, something to get some exercise, whatever it might be, right? I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that th this is going to be a little crazy. Is I think we have some some hired guns out there that know exactly how to sell units. Everybody right now with salespeople in their dealership are the right salespeople, meaning they're the ones that can go out there. They can make the calls. They can get the unit down the road. I think what we're lacking capitalizing on new customers is like a customer service employee, people that are going to be able to follow up, people that are going to be able to create an experience within your dealership, people that are willing to make the text messages, the personalized text messages to that new customer to ensure that they got everything that they needed and that they're getting treated the way they want to be treated. So with that said, what I'm thinking is, is I'm looking for a customer experience specialist. I'm looking for somebody that does more than just sell a unit because those people, in my opinion, Sam, are mutually exclusive. Those hired guns that know how to sell, they're not necessarily interested in texting their customers one week, one month, one year after. But there are people out there that are purely interested in the customer service side of life. We got to find that blend and look for that person. They, they are. And a lot of the Harley guys out there, you, you've gone to that model of a fit and a ride, right? Where you have a, somebody who does the front end of the sale to get people excited about the bike. And then somebody that comes in and does the numbers, because the reality is there are certain people really good and really love establishing relationships. And then there are certain people who just love the deal. Give me the deal. Let's close the deal. Tony, to your point, you're talking about the people who are closing the deals are the people in the showroom right now. And so what we're missing is the true engagement, the true friendship and relationship with our customers to engage them and make sure they're having the product and having fun with the product. So I'm, I'm going to give you a stat and then I'm going to tell you how to pay for what a lot of you just heard as Tony's person in the dealership, which is nothing but an expense to the dealership. So stand by. Here, here's the data I want to give you. And this comes out of the marine industry. It's very interesting what data we get that's specific to motorcycle and some that's specific to marine and how they literally cross over across the board. But we've had eight declining years of first time boat buyers in the marine industry. Eight until 2020 and then it spiked and went through the roof if you look at the history of those eight years of first-time boat buyers within five 32 percent of them are out of the sport they're gone now i want you to think about the long-term effects of the revenue you didn't get with the first-time boat buyer who didn't come back to you who's not buying parts and accessories who's not buying the yeti cooler and not buying that new helmet because they're out of the sport completely so is it justified what tony is saying on the back side of this thing here what is it that we can do? 
Tony, you probably remember when we used to train CRMs, I had a statistic in our slide deck from years ago, and it came from the MIC, which was that the first sale of a major unit in a want-based industry is 8% of the revenue that that customer will spend over the course of his or her lifetime. Yeah. Right. So do you want 8% now and not following up with the customer? Or would you rather have 92% on the back end of it because you have somebody, whether it's a sales guy or somebody responsible for driving the customer back in the store? And here's the last data point I'll give you on this, Tony. Uh, again, out of that Salesforce report, and th this is a great report. I'm going to make sure the moderators put it in the classrooms of all of our 20 clubs out there. But this bullet point right here, 7%, an increase in loyalty is all it takes to increase a lifetime profit of that customer 85%. Now, again, this isn't some fly-by-night CRM. It's probably the best CRM in the country, quite frankly. It's almost too robust for a lot of us to use, including garage composites. We had it at one point and backed down because it did just too much. An increase in loyalty, customer loyalty. And there are a lot of things that drive loyalty. Loyalty programs, but nothing's more sincere than somebody reaching out to me and making sure I'm enjoying the product and causing me to come back in the store. A 7% increase is all it takes to increase lifetime profits by 85% per customer. So you think about that and you yeah. think about how do I pay for that person in the shop? That's how you pay for the person in the shop. New revenue versus customer for life, Sam. Either or question. No, that's a both. That's an and and a both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally agree with that. That's awesome. Let's move on to bullet point number four. And that is what process should be rethought in our new normal. That's another big one that I'm getting right now from all of our 20 clubs, which is, hey, man, was this just a Band-Aid or are we literally ripping off the Band-Aid and now this is the new normal? And what I'm going to say is just my opinion, and that is that I, I believe this is another and. Meaning everybody, there are people out there that says the world will never be the same. The world is never the same, no matter what year it is. The world changes daily, monthly, and by the year. We just got put into a place where we had to completely pivot and evolve, and we had to speed up in some places. We lost some things. Some things went up. I can tell you, when it, just personally, I can tell you that I think when this thing is all really fully over, I think you're going to see things like Netflix and Roku and all that stuff drop back down because people want to get out and stretch their legs. Lord knows you and I do. Right. So um, I, I believe that you should never say anything like, oh, well, this is going to completely flip us on our ear. That's not true. What it just did is it just made us evolve quicker. I agree. It's that it's that and model. Right. If uh, if I was able to buy a motorcycle from you virtually without ever coming in your store, that becomes one of the ways I want to do business with you moving yes. forward. Right? Yes. It's, it's not that it's virtual now and no one's coming in your store. And it's also not the old school way, which is push for an appointment from every single person and not allow them to shop virtually. It's and it's both. You know, Tony, some of these that came to mind for me are OEM specific. And we have a lot of OEMs that listen to this podcast and some of them are we can be done in a dealership. So I'm obviously going to speed through some of the ones that are OEM yeah. specific and just kind of yep. put the seed out there. First one is build the order. If you remember, Tony, back in 2006, 2007, Jim Kazara from, I forget the name of the trailer company, but there's a trailer company in Golden, Colorado, and they made custom built trailers that you could either pull behind motorcycles or pull your motorcycle inside of. And they looked like the motorcycle, like they would make the trailer look like the motorcycle. It was pretty cool. And I said, how do you deal with inventory? Because it's such a niche market. And he said, we build it by demand. You come in and the showroom is, here's the stuff, here's the panels, here's the color, here's the paint. And you pick it and you say, here, I have a Honda Goldwing or I have a BMW uh, K1600 or whatever it is. And they build the trailer to the bike at the moment. So we don't have a whole lot of 
shipping. We don't have a lot of units out on the showroom floor. We don't have a lot of inventory that dealers have to pay flooring on, et cetera. And quite frankly, that's exactly how Tesla does their model. If you go into a Tesla store in the mall, there's one fully built Tesla, and then there's a rolling chassis, and there's every way to build the Tesla on the walls around the unit itself. So for the OEMs out there, I do understand you eliminate some of the excitement of the showroom floor by not having the product on the floor, but that is something to consider about what we need to rethink. Are we really interested in loading up dealers with inventory so they're paying flooring? And the flip side is, in years like we had just now and like we think we're going in 2021, we don't, we don't have the inventory, right? So is that inventory distribution something we really need to think through? You hit on the point that I wanted to make right at the end there, Sam, which was, gang, if you're looking for a positive of not having inventory, flip the paradigm and say, oh, well, we're going to do a build to order model then. Yeah, absolutely. Come on in, bring a check, right? That it's a non-refundable deposit. And let's sit down and actually build your unit together right here in the dealership. Or if you can't come in, let's jump onto a Zoom or a Google Meet and we'll get on the website and we're going to build your specific motorcycle today. So well, you Tony, always Tony, have to be inventive. Yeah, flooring. I'm just looking at flooring on the composite. I'm looking at right now, and the national average is flooring dropped literally in half, 1.6% of sales to 0.8% of sales. So there's the other side of it, right? That's money that went right into the dealer's pocket this past year. We have been talking about this for years. So really, COVID just put an exclamation point to our moaning and groaning, which has always set the appointment. Back when I started working for you and Ed Lemko, it was the only reason that we have a telephone in the dealership is to what? <laughs> Get the customer through the door. We, we've been saying that for, well, I've been saying it for almost going on 20 years now. COVID-19 really drove that point home of if you have somebody, if you are fortunate enough to take an incoming lead via email, via the chat, via a text message to you, or the old-fashioned way, somebody picking up a phone, and you're going to start hearing Garage Composite Sam and all of our trainers say that the phone is an antiquated method of doing business, <laughs> meaning it's a text message now. You better set that appointment. That is why it is in the top through uh, two steps of the virtual sales process that we have with Garage Composites is put them onto the traffic log so that you are guaranteed to get back to that customer. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Then Tony, talk about pickup or drop off. I mean, for years we talked about in your priority maintenance plan, a component of picking up or dropping off, not and right. That was a, we've used to beat the drum on that because the idea of the goal was in the front or the backside of the sale to get the customer in the shop. So they're seeing all the new stuff that's out here. So we will do one or the other, either way you're going to get into the shop. But now with COVID, I know personally, I have done a tremendous lot more business with my local motorcycle shop because they do pick up and delivery and they do it yes. on gloves and motorcycles and all kinds of stuff. And I'm on the sauce, dude. So pick up and delivery. Uh, if you've not been through Max's training, Max would turn our service trainer. He can walk you through the revenue as to how to make that profitable for the service department to do the pickup and delivery on the service side of the fence. So reach out to him, Max at garagecomposites.com and pick up and delivery as opposed to pick up or delivery. I, I really have to prompt some people that are listening to this podcast. And just by the concept of me saying that you're listening to our podcast will show the evolution of life and business. Whereas we used to say it was pickup or delivery. Gang, there are people that want a premium experience and will pay for it to never have to walk into your store. It doesn't sound good or sexy. It goes against everything we have told you for, for decades. But man, if they're willing to pay for it and it creates an experience within your dealership, 
you need to think about doing that because yeah, there, there's times where I, I'm just, I'm more involved in doing something else with my children than I, I don't want to walk in your dealership today, this week, this month. I want you to do it all for me and yeah. I'll pay for it. Yeah, exactly right. Handle it. I'll pay for it. Handle it. Right. Okay, Sam. Another one that we we came up with was you know selling warranties in the in the business office and, and kind of rethinking through that or what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, there's really two schools of thought here, so I'm going to give you one side of it, Tony. Maybe you can come back on the back side of this, but you sit here and you think about the average turn cycle, and and it's different based on price point. Obviously, the lower the price point, the faster the turn cycle. But in the motorcycle industry, in general, somewhere in that two to two and a half uh, year ownership is when the customer is coming back in. And we're talking about speeding up the turn cycle. Harley Davidson, most recent data I've seen is at 38 months. The average person's hanging on to their bike for 38 months. So just over three years in that sense, uh, you get over $100,000. The average boat is turning at six years, whatever it happens to be. If you're selling a warranty to somebody who has an average turn cycle of if I stay with the motorcycle side of the fence three years, but you're selling them a five and a six year warranty, that's great that you get the money up front. But what am I teaching the dealer? What am I teaching the customer? I'm giving them an incentive to not come back into the store because I bought a six-year warranty on this thing. I'm going to keep it for six years. As opposed to your warranties running up, it might be time to come on in. I want to speed their turn cycle up by not impeding their ability to come back and trade the bike. Now, everybody out there listening to the call knows that you um, you you could cancel that warranty and there's an amount of credit that you could use for a down payment. And I know you know that and you're skilled on how to do that. Your customer doesn't know that. And even if you told them that at the time of purchase, they're going to forget after three or four years. They're going to think, I don't know, I paid all this money for his warranty. Maybe I'll just hang on to it a little longer. So in, in the spirit of getting more inventory on the showroom floor and speeding up the customer's turn cycle, maybe we look at not selling warranties past three years. What are your thoughts, Tony? My thoughts are I like that. I understand how it's customer service centric. On the backside of that, as we all know that there are dealers that uh, are partake in their own reinsurance program and they make that money on the back end, whether the customer uses it or not. And so you just have to find the sweet spot is all you have to do and realize what's best for the customer. Also, what's best for your bottom line and find the sweet spot in the middle and go with it. It's just, again, we are trying to be inventive here and show you things that you can be doing moving forward. One of the other things that we feel that could be brought back into the mix, again, it's all catchphrases everything comes back around at some point, it seems like. And this one always cracked me up, right? Which is the guaranteed buyback program. And and there's going to be silence there. And then there's going to be dealers going, whoa, hold on, dude. Uh, I got to call my lawyer because you just said guaranteed. (laughs) And and you're right. I did. And the way that I'm going to sell the guaranteed buyback program to you is we have trained dealers and we still will. And if you haven't learned what we're talking about in the pre-owned market right now about what we believe is, Guaranteed buyback program doesn't mean you buy back the motorcycle at what the customer wants. It doesn't mean that you that they have completely trashed the unit and it's worth nothing and you give them full pop off the book. That's not what it means. It's a savvy way of marketing saying, come in and take this product. Attach that as a guaranteed buyback program, which after you're done for a year or two years or whenever you're ready to trade up, we guarantee that we will buy back that unit. Now, when I say that we guarantee we'll buy it back, Guess what you always do? You always take in pre-owned inventory. And whether you're going to take it to the dump, whether you're going to take it out back and kill it and barbecue it, whether you're going to take it and pay money for it and give it to one of your technicians who likes to take the gun to the range, the fact is, is you buy everything no matter what anyway. We're just adding a savvy way to make uh, the customer enthused about buying the thing in front of them. 
Would you agree with me on that? Yeah. I point of clarification. When Tony talks about <laughs> taking the gun to the range, he forgot the part of because we like to take everything in on trade, including toolboxes and guns and electric guitars, then, then there's a gun available to take to the range because that kind of came out of left field. <laughs> and the remember, there, there's a remember there's a VIN number attached to that gun and that goat and that <laughs> the fridge, whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. If it if it doesn't eat, I'll take it as a trade, right? Um, <laughs> but but yeah, the, the guaranteed buy. Let's call it something else. Let's call it a uh, let's call it a first right of refusal buyback program right so give us the first yeah. shot at this thing and it's as simple as look you paid x for it we're going to give you x minus blank dollars per mile or blank dollars per hour on the boat or the utv right minus a certain dollar amount of usage and then we're also going to run it through our service department and you'd be responsible for any repairs or outstanding uh, pieces like that because look gang what we're getting at here is what when people buy these toys they want to know they can get out of them if it went wrong or I had to sell it or I needed the money or I got hurt, could I get out of it? And the answer is with a guaranteed buyback program, it's almost a feel good thing. Uh, yes. Th here's your outlet right here. Right. So I, I like the guaranteed buyback program. If you think about back in the day, Buell Blast, when when Harley Davidson had Buell, those those entry level Buell motorcycles, they would be bought back at a full dollar amount minus X amount of dollars per mile because that's a great training bike and people would buy it for you know, three, six months, maybe a year, and then they come back in and they'd have that much credit towards the new one. So it's just speeding up turn cycles and getting customers back in your store. Talk to me a little bit about a rental program. We alluded to it a little bit earlier with the yachting and, and being able to get out of it and not own that piece. What are your thoughts on a rental program with predictable two-year trades? Rental program is is merely a subscription program, gang. And I, I was just teaching this uh, the beginning of this week, which was how you know, I asked the entire room, how many people in here partake in um, some sort of subscription based product? And about half the room raised their hand. And I'm like, hold, OK, hold, hold on, hold on. Um, and I pointed to, to one guy that was sitting there that didn't raise his hand. I said, so you still listening to records or, or is it that you put the tape in the tape deck and press play? He's like, oh, you mean like Spotify? I'm like, yeah, like Spotify. And then a couple more. Oh, Netflix. Oh, yeah, I get a, a clothing box. Oh, I get a whiskey. But whatever that is, gang, the rental program with a, a predictable two year trade in. If you can start getting something where where we pay a monthly uh, charge, customers fall all over themselves through that. It's, it's just what we naturally do that. That's how the world is. And I know for a fact, OEs are heading that way to get into some sort of rental program and a buyback program. So I think it's something that you may not have the infrastructure. You may not have all of the pieces in play, but trust me, it's coming down the pipe and be ready for it. Well, the first question, and I know this as fact because I've been telling my local bike shop forever, hey, man, let me pay you $250 a month, and I just want to come get a used bike off your floor, and I'll keep it for two months, and then I'll come back and give you it back and take another one, and you just keep charging me. What's the number? And I want to participate in this. Oh, well, who carries the insurance? I don't know. There are a lot. Do you own it? Is there a title? And, and my answer is, I don't care. I, I don't care. And I think dealers overthink that model too much. If you need to carry the insurance, then take my prorated amount of insurance and bolt that to the number I'm paying you every single month. Cool. You're going to get customers who are going to want to play that game because they don't want to go to the DMV and they don't want to own it and they don't want to be responsible for it. And if I break it, when I bring it back, take that out of what, you know, that, that I owe you X amount of dollars because I broke it. So I think the mechanics behind that are more simple than a lot of people uh, lead into. So that's another one. of You know, and I'm not talking about a lease because we've had a couple of companies try the lease model and it's just uh, that, that gets a little too convoluted. I think that last 
point was just selfishness of you wanting to truly drive that home so that you can get that program put into place that, at Fat Myers. If you haven't noticed, there are things I do, Tony, that are somewhat <laughs> selfish. Uh, just, if, um, and if you need a referral on that, please talk to Brandy. She might she might second my opinion. She might second that. Hey, let's wrap this episode up, this two-parter, this part one. Let's wrap this episode up with a detached uh, service facilities discussion. Yeah. Um, complete, complete paradigm shift. Yeah, just as far as rethinking this stuff, right? You, you've had, uh, we had collision centers, right? Let's call them collision centers. If a bike is busted up and I'm in your main store and I see a bike torn to pieces or a boat that you know ran aground and ripped up the hull and stuff, I don't know that that's a good leader for me to want to buy a new motorcycle or a new boat. I don't know that that's what your first time customer needs to see. So we've had for years people outsourcing that, not to a different company, just to a different building. They would push that collision center off to the side. Uh, yes, you could delineate between the service department and a collision center, but just having a separate building even if it's in the back of the parking lot, I know that also comes with some complications as far as service riders needing to know when the when the technicians are available and you know not being able to literally just walk behind the door and figure out what's going on with someone's bike. But I, but I think it allows for a custom experience inside of the showroom while the duck's feet that are paddling across the water are going on in some other building or out of sight, if you will. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with dealers on that before. Some dealers have tried to detach service department. It hasn't worked, but I don't think it, I, I think it hasn't worked for some of the logistics that they never worked through. If you think about the mindset of the customer and the experience, if we could push some of the ancillary pieces of the labor going on behind the scenes to the back, uh, it may be a way to go. Good, good discussion on that one. Okay, man. So let's see. It is, uh, I'm looking at my watch here. We're 40 some odd minutes into this and we've only gotten four of our points across. I didn't know if we so, were going to get out of bullet point number one there for a while. Uh, with that said, I think uh, what we have learned is people don't like to listen to hour and a half, an hour and 45 minute podcast. So with that said, what we're going to do, gang, that is going to be uh, session one of episode 52. We're going to come back and we're going to hit the rest of our four other points in session number two. So Sam, I'm going to cut us short right here and say, man, for Sam Dantzler, I'm Tony Gonzalez. So that was session number one of episode 52. We will see you guys next week where we will finish up our four points in session number two. That's going to be episode 53. Everybody have a fantastic week. We'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone. <laughs>